and welcome to Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm your host, Mike Allen. Well, maybe you've heard of it or driven by it on Route 7 in Fairfield County. Today, it's just an abandoned, rusting eyesore, nothing like its past glory days. And glory days, they were. We're talking about the Gilbert and Bennett Manufacturing Site in Georgetown, Connecticut. It's an industrial oasis in a beautiful, leafy, mid-Fairfield County setting. Now, its history is going to amaze you because wait until you hear about what they invented there. Few people know the history as well as Brent Colley. It was his great-great-great-great-grandfather that was one of the original blacksmiths at Gilbert and Bennett. And that makes Brent fifth-generation Reading. He's also finishing out his fifth term as first selectman of Sharon, Connecticut. Well, he knows the history and the stories, and he's here to share them today. I'm very glad, and you will be too, after you hear these amazing tales. When you look at mid-Fairfield County, the word industrial simply doesn't come to mind. Not with the towns of Wilton, New Canaan, Ridgefield, Reading, Easton, and Weston. Now, big cities have industries, cities like Bridgeport, Stamford, Norwalk, and Danbury, but not the pristine bucolic mid-county areas. The one big exception to this is what I call a location within a location, and that is Georgetown, Connecticut. Now, Georgetown is partly in Reading, partly in Wilton, and partly in Weston. It has its own fire department, but not its own government. So depending on where you live in Georgetown, you're paying taxes to either Reading, Wilton, or Weston. So it's kind of an unusual situation. Well, there, carved out of the beauty that is Fairfield County, is an industrial site. Today, it's shuttered, abandoned, but it's gigantic, 55 acres. It used to be a good old-fashioned thriving industrial manufacturing site that dates all the way back to the 1800s and survived through most of the 1990s. Well, they made wire, and wait until you hear what their really big invention was. I was amazed. Reading historian Brent Colley's ancestors worked at Gilbert and Bennett. He grew up not too far from the site, and we spoke recently about the early days of Gilbert and Bennett. It is huge. It is extensive. And what I kept thinking was, there's Norwalk, and there's Danbury, and in between it, there's nothing industrial except for this in Georgetown. I mean, is that how you see it? They were producing, at one point in time, the most wire in the entire world. So it was a really big operation and a very successful one. But the reason why they were successful was that the managers and the supervisors and the owners all lived with the employees. And everyone lived in the same neighborhood. Everything revolved around Gilbert and Bennett. When you look back to Benjamin Gilbert, who started this whole thing working out of his house in Weston, I was fascinated to find out that it all started with horsehair. Back in the day, horsehair was it. And that's what they used to sift flour and other powders and other liquids. You know, he was making these hoops and, and weaving at home with his wife and daughters and making these these sids. You know, it was easy for him because I believe he started out as working some part of the leather industry. So he's going to all these different slaughterhouses, if you will, and seeing all the hair that's just like piling up and just being tossed. It was just, be, it was just open waste. At some point he decided, well, maybe I can use that. He started to ask for the 
the hair as well as the leather. And lo and behold, he started making his own products with the hair. Here he had to invent something called a hair picker to straighten all this hair so you could even clean it and weave it. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, no, he went above and beyond. And then he, he was just using, you know, the pond local to him to clean it and detangle it. Now, before the large manufacturing buildings were built that became Gilbert and Bennett, residents in the area used to make these horsehair sifters in their actual homes. They'd sell them to area residents and they could use them to sift flour and even liquids. But in order to expand, Gilbert and Bennett needed to sell their products outside of the immediate area. One of Benjamin Gilbert's sons, William, was the first guy who decides to take these products on the road and he loads his wagon and starts going off on these perilous journeys to sell these goods. I mean, this is before the railroad. This is how you did it. Yeah, yep. That you load up your wagon with all your goods. And you, it was difficult because you had to go out to these distant farms, uh, educate the individuals on what you had and, and why it would be a benefit to them. And then on your way back, you know, you have either all this money or something that you traded for. <laughs> you know, you, you had to make it home safe. So it's, it's unimaginable how they did it. And the salesman job was very, very difficult in that time frame uh, for that main reason. You probably didn't know exactly where you were going. You know, you didn't know if you were really going to make it back. Well, as Brent said, everybody in the Georgetown region was associated with Gilbert and Bennett. You either worked for them or you ran a business that supported them. Eventually, Gilbert and Bennett would find a substitute for horsehair, and that was wire. And that's when Gilbert and Bennett started making flower sifters out of wire instead of horsehair. The problem was this was an extremely labor-intensive effort, took a lot of time. But the wire sieves were so popular that they decided they had to go ahead with that labor-intensive effort. Well, two nearby residents one day made a quantum leap improvement. And just like the hair picker machine that automated the weaving of horsehair, these two men concocted a machine that would actually weave wire. Now, not only did this make wire shifters easier to produce, it led to the light bulb idea which completely revolutionized life as we knew it back then and still do to this day. So it's fair to say that Gilbert and Bennett invented window screens. Yeah, the story goes that uh, during the Civil War, uh, Southern markets got shut down. So we had a lot of inventory building up. Someone decided to give it a coat of paint and sell it as a, a window screen and that was something that really was popular with anyone. That's when it really gets large because everyone needs one because they weren't really using anything that was effective. Either you didn't have one or you're hanging cheesecloth in front of your window. So, you know, it didn't matter if you were a Southern market or a Northern market, even though it's the Civil War, people want it. Brent makes an important observation about Gilbert and Bennett's commercial journey. They started way back in the early 1800s and survived until the 1990s. And along the way, they went through what everybody in the growing United States experienced in the industrial sector. I look at the company, everything that happened with them ended up happening in other businesses. But they, they have the full line of that American history in business. So, you know, everything from that to you know, having to overcome fires and they got into joint stock companies and then you had to transition from the founding family into you know who was next immigration you know the, the impact of other inventions such as the telegraph and, and railroads i mean mergers and acquisitions 
uh, union strikes. Now, focusing for a minute on the immigration angle, the railroad coming through Georgetown in the mid-1800s actually played a very interesting role. You tell a great story about the immigration angle to this and that with the railroad, agents of Gilbert and Bennett were actually able to go down to the equivalent of Ellis Island in southern Manhattan where the ships were coming in from Europe and screen workers to bring them back. How did that work? Castle Garden was what was bringing immigrants that moment in time. That's just before Ellis Island. So the agents would go down. They knew who they needed and what they needed them for. The immigrants would come in looking for their new life. They'd be interviewed. And if they were found to be a match, then they were given a one-way ticket to Georgetown. And that's how we got, you know, such a well-diverse group of, of residents. You know, Scandinavians were amazing with, with wood and building. And, you know, the, the Polish were, were pretty amazing um, with, with their skills. And, you know, the Irish came in. So we, between one mile, we had five different churches because you, you, everyone had their own needs. You know, the Swedes had theirs, the Catholics had theirs. It ended up being a really diverse uh, community relatively overnight. Well, because everybody was dependent on the fortunes of Gilbert and Bennett, it was absolutely devastating when disaster hit in the latter part of the 19th century. 1874, major fire, what happened? The majority of the factory is, is lost to fire, takes everything down. The company is at a point now where they're going to have to make a decision as to what, what happens next. And it takes them 19 days, a lot of pacing, um, a lot of sleepless nights, I'd imagine. But what was happening at that moment in time in, in American business was that um, joint stock companies were, were opening up. And so they decided to create a joint stock company of their own, local um, owners as well as workers and, and other investors got involved. And before you knew it, within that short time frame, they're back to building. Well, they moved forward and prospered for many more decades to come. In fact, so good would their fortunes be that Gilbert and Bennett opened facilities across the country. They were making woven wire for window screens, chicken coops, and almost anything else in between that you could imagine, fencing and you name it. But Brent says that this expansion took the focus off of just Georgetown and made the company something that it frankly hadn't been before, which was a mammoth multi-site operation. That's where the real transition starts to occur. And that's when the, the, the country also gets into mergers and acquisitions. So now you have a board of directors that isn't necessarily directly living at the site. And there tends to be some factions from the different owners of the different properties all around the country. So everyone has a different idea of how the company should be run. So that was kind of like the first chink in the armor. And then from there, we get into deciding, you know, it's more about profit than it is anything else. So that's when they decide to move um, operations out of Georgetown and down into Georgia. What's really interesting is that that same moment in time, there was a movie being made at the factory called Other People's Money. And there was like a huge correlation between the two. Other People's Money starred Gregory Peck and Danny DeVito, the plot being that a corporate raider, Danny DeVito, would take over an aging brick manufacturing site for pure profit and greed. Maybe you saw it. Well, along with the other problems that were starting to build up for Gilbert and Bennett, the first war between Iraq and Kuwait broke out, and believe it or not, that factors into the story. It turns out that some of the investors who had come in in the 
mid to late 70s, we're from Kuwait. When the war amps up, the Kuwaiti money all gets frozen. So now we don't have any money. Of course, something else everybody had to deal with in American business was the competition and ways to lower prices. And so Gilbert and Bennett, not immune to this, went to China and tried to find some partners there to reduce their manufacturing costs. And, and that ultimately didn't work out. A group from Georgetown and um, other parts of the Gilbert and Bennett empire, if you will, go to China and teach them how to make our wire. And before you know it, by 1998, they're out of business and China was making our wire and um, labeling it as Gilbert and and wire. Today, after a 181-year fabled and iconic past, all that's left is the hollowed-out brick buildings littering the landscape in Georgetown. Windows are broken, debris lays scattered about. Looks like somebody left in a hurry. Well, the question then becomes what to do with it. I decided to ask Brent what he thought about it. When I drove through the neighborhood and was looking at the Gilbert and Bennett buildings and thinking about just how difficult it will be to clean that entire footprint up. Uh, your five generations of Reading, what are your thoughts about next steps and what ought to happen there? I think you're correct in saying that it's going to be difficult to, to clean it up. And, um, you know, there's probably some, some hidden parts that no one wants to find. You know, the galvanization process is, was pretty damaging to the environment. Based on what I know and, and what I've seen, I think it'd become a great sports complex. I think you could have indoor and outdoor athletic spaces all winter, summer, fall long. I mean, you got how many towns around us, you know, Ridgefield, Wilton, Reading, Weston. Think about like indoor tennis, indoor lacrosse, indoor whatever. Um, I've seen it in other locations. And I think you got the population in terms of um, residents and, and, and their children that would really buy into it. And it doesn't even have to be just about kids. You could also do adult stuff, too. I mean, they do it in Stanford. They do it in North Brantford. They do it all over the country. I think that could be an option. For now, the remnants of what was once a great thriving industrial manufacturing plant, oddly located in the middle of quaint backwoods Fairfield County, remains available for you to drive by and see with your own eyes as a reminder of what used to be in this region. Well, that wraps up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. In an upcoming episode, Brent Colley will be back to talk about the other unusual stop along Route 7, not far from Georgetown, Branchville, and the world-famous Branchville Mine. For now, thanks for listening, and as a reminder, I do presentations on the topics that I discuss here on Amazing Tales. I'll do them in person or by Zoom. If you want me to come in front of your group, just drop me a line at amazingtalesct at gmail.com and we can discuss it. Also, in between episodes, please check out my Facebook page at Amazing Tales CT. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Stay healthy.